Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Getting Human Rights Back on Track. Please welcome our host, Brett Schaefer, Senior Research Fellow for International Regulatory Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's event, Getting Human Rights Back on Track. One of the most lasting and valuable gifts that America has provided the world was creating a system of government that recognize that all human beings possess unalienable rights and that government should not violate those rights. Under the leadership of Eleanor Roosevelt, the United Nations adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UDHR, and they spread that value and that uh, viewpoint to the rest of the world. The UDHR was an extraordinary document that represented the consensus of representatives from different cultures, different countries, different political systems, different languages, and different religions. However, that remarkable consensus is under increasing challenge internationally by those who seek to reinterpret the rights that were expressed in that document and to also expand them to new rights that were never envisioned in 1948. Concerned about the impact of this trend on not just the United States, but the international human rights agenda at large, led the, United, uh, led the Heritage Foundation to launch the first principles of, human, of international human rights uh, essay series. And here to give their thoughts on how to get human rights back on track are some of the contributors to that project and that essay series. Um, they are all incredibly impressive, and they all have long uh, bios that I'm not going to go over in their entirety here, but I'm going to give a brief summary of their highlights. Uh, to my left is Paulo Carrazzo. Uh, he is a professor at Notre Dame Law School and serves as the director of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Mr. Carrazzo also serves as a United States member of the European Commission for Democracy Through Law and as a member of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. He, pre he previously served on the U.S. Department of State's Independent Nonpartisan Advisory Commission on Unalienable Rights. Uh, Mr. Carrazzo holds an A.B. from Harvard University and a J.D. from Harvard Law School. Uh, further to my left, is Emily Gao. She serves as Senior Counsel and Vice President for Advocacy Strategy at Alliance Defending Freedom. Previously, Ms. Gao was the Director of the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation and is the co-editor of the First Principles on International Human Rights essay series with me. Uh, prior to that, Ms. Gao served as the uh, East Asia Team Leader in the Department of State's Office of International Human Rights and was an adjunct professor at the Antonin Scalia uh, School of Law, uh, I'm sorry, the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. She also holds an AB from Harvard University and a JD from Harvard Law School. Uh, joining us online is Paul Coleman, who serves as the Executive Director of Alliance Defending Freedom International. He specializes in international human rights and European law and has been involved in more than 20 cases before the European Court of Human Rights and has authored complaints and submissions to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, the International Criminal Court, the UN Com Human Rights Committee, and numerous national courts. He earned a Bachelor of Laws from Newcastle University 
and an LLM in postgraduate diploma in legal practice from the Northumbria Law School. So please uh, join me in welcoming our panelists here today. I'm very pleased to have all of you to join us. This is a great event, and I'm looking forward to our comments. Uh, to lead us off, I was hoping, Paulo, you might want to uh, talk a bit about the Commission on Unalienable Rights at the Department of State, your experience there. Uh, that report has been criticized uh, by a number of human rights organizations and um, also been disavowed by the Biden administration. Uh, and I think that's unfair. I think that report was a very serious effort, a very serious study by very serious people uh, who uh, coming at that, uh, the idea of unalienable rights from different parts of the political spectrum. And I was wondering if you might want to talk about your perspective on what that report really said uh, and why that criticism might be unjustified. Thank you, Brett. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for, for inviting me and for, for having us here for this important discussion. I'm very glad to be part of it. Um, so for those who aren't familiar with the details, the Commission on Unalienable Rights was convened by then Secretary of State uh, Michael Pompeo in 2019. Um, and the reason, essential reason that he gave for it was the observation that he believed that uh, human rights, the, the international human rights project as it had been conceived in the mid 20th century was in crisis, uh, that, that was in, in, a, in a word. Um, but the crisis uh, has a, a number of different dimensions to it. In part, it's simply that violations of human rights are still massive around the world. Billions of people, without exaggeration, are still living under authoritarian regimes. Uh, and fundamental human rights are being violated uh, on a massive scale every day, and the system is still not capable of adequately addressing those things. But also in crisis, in part because um, of challenges to the very idea of human rights. And I think this is also what animated the convening of this commission, uh, questioning their universality, uh, the fraying of consensus around the ideas that existed that you were referring to at the time of the Universal Declaration. So he, uh, under the Federal Advisory Commissions Act, uh, convened uh, 11 commissioners, it was a, quite a diverse group, um, and uh, asked us to step back from the day-to-day -day policy concerns and articulate a set of principles, to focus on the principles that should be animating US policies in the human rights sphere more generally. Um, so in some senses, returning to first principles, to, go, you know, the, to echo the, the report then you are also referring to. And even more specifically, the, the mandate was to try to ground those principles in the founding constitutional principles of the US system, as well as in the principles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, to which the, the United States had contributed to and committed itself to in the mid 20th century. Um, the report, uh, we, we, we met over 2019, 2020, uh, convened public hearings, a variety of different um, uh, um, scholars, activists across the ideological spectrum contributed to that discussion. Um, uh, we had to get through the beginning of the pandemic, which wasn't easy, uh, of course, for everybody, uh, but managed in uh, the summer of 2020 to issue a final report. And yes, there was a great deal of controversy and criticism around it. Um, letters of protest, uh, attacks um, in the media, uh, even lawsuits that were filed to try to enjoin the commission from meeting and from doing its work. Um, and I think there were various reasons for those attacks. Most of them, I'll, I'll be quite honest, I think reveal more about um, 
the critics than about the commission itself for the report, because many of them were uh, attacking a straw man, uh, a, a report that didn't exist, uh, but was projected to exist. In part, I think the criticism, uh, let's be honest, uh, simply was generated by the fact that it was during the administration of Donald Trump. And so anything uh, was going to be subject to media criticism and ideological uh, um, uh, opposition. Um, I, I think there was some concern that an independent commission like this that was outside of the bureaucratic apparatus of the State Department might in some ways be threatening to the permanent uh, you know, staff and experts and professionals. I, I think that was a concern that we allayed because we worked very closely with them, in fact. Um, I think there was some concern that the work might be threatening to, um, you could say, a certain kind of orthodox NGO human rights establishment uh, that I, I think implicitly claims a certain kind of ownership over the idea and practice of human rights. Um, so to have all these people coming in from outside of that world uh, was somehow considered to be in, inappropriate or, or uh, you know, um, uh, not, um, not in sync with uh, the mainstream, right? Um, I, but I, I think even more important, something that's, that I think is critical to our discussion as a whole today, is that uh, even beyond the commission's work, I, I've often observed that um, serious criticism, critical engagement of the human rights enterprise is often received as a rejection of the idea of human rights, as an opposition to that idea. And that's not at all what the commission was about. I, I can promise you, despite differences of opinion on a wide variety of controversial issues that we had among ourselves, the one thing that everybody had in common was a deep commitment to the idea of human rights, the principle, and the desire to realize them better, different visions of how that would happen. Uh, so it wasn't an anti-human rights project, but I think that's often, that's a large extent to how it was received. And, and finally, I would say, I mean, much of it was simply, um, well, to be quite frank, uh, what the commission was going to say was criticized by its critics even before the commission ever met. Uh, this is a fact. You can read it in the news, right? We had never, ever met, and there were already reports about what the commission was going to say in its conclusions a year from then. Right? We didn't say those things in our conclusions, and nevertheless, when the report came out, it was criticized for saying the things that people said we were going to say that we didn't say. <laughs> All right? Um, so it's a little bit frustrating. It is essentially, I'll be honest, I think the core problem is that I don't think people actually read the report. Right? Um, I, I might go so far as to say, I, I, you know, I wonder whether Secretary Blinken read the report. Um, in his first human rights, uh, his first speech on human rights policy, he directly um, repudiated, that was his word, uh, the commission's work and, and everything that um, it said. And the grounds for his repudiation echoed criticisms of points that allegedly the report says that it doesn't say, mm. manifestly. And conversely, when he went on to outline the principal points of his human rights policy, nine or 10 of, of the dozen points that he articulated were completely consonant with the recommendations of the report, and yet it was repudiated. Um, so, the, so, so I, I, you know, I would simply encourage everybody, everybody listening, anybody who you talk to, read it. Read it with an open mind. Read it fairly. It's a complicated, long, sophisticated report. A lot of different voices 
and expertise went into it. It's not perfect. No such report ever is. It's open to criticism, but it's worth engaging substantively. There are good, important ideas in it that merit consideration as we contemplate the future of U.S. policy and human rights. Uh, thank you very much. And I, I mean, just on the on the face of it, um, because the commission did have members who are um, uh, on the left side of the political spectrum, they wouldn't have signed on to a report that said the things that is often criticized of saying. This is a, a consensus document that I think, again, is very serious in. And again, I echo your, your sentiments. Uh, read the report and, and come to your own conclusions. Uh, Emily, um, I was wondering, uh, well, I, not wondering, I know. Uh, when we were contemplating uh, our own project here, the uh, First Principles on International Human Rights essay series, uh, it, we were doing it at the same time, obviously, in retrospect, that the State Department was contemplating their own uh, Commission on Unalienable Rights. And I think it was motivated by a lot of the same concerns. And I was wondering if you might give the, uh, the audience here uh, some idea about what motivated our um, initial project and why we decided to go with the essay series and then go over some of the conclusions and discussion that, um, that the authors provided. Thanks, Brett. Yeah, we also, like the commission, we wanted to see a return of the discussion about international human rights to the first principles of natural law and natural rights so that there would be greater protection of human rights for those who are suffering the gravest injustices around the world. And that's why we convened uh, this series of essays. So just briefly, I want to say, what are unalienable rights? Well, when um, Professor Robert George spoke here in 2019 about international religious freedom, he talked about how inalienable rights are the rights that we have simply because we're human. Um, that's the concept of human dignity in international human rights law. And then they are pre-political. They are not a grant from the government or um, dependent on the government. And then third, they belong to all of us. It doesn't matter, you know, how, whether you're male or female, whether you're young or old, um, what country you live in, whether you're rich or poor. They belong to all of us. And we wanted to get back to an understanding of what unalienable human rights are and look at how the current discussion about human rights aligns or does not align with the understanding of unalienable human rights. Professor George challenged us to do philosophy in order to determine what human rights are and what human rights there are. And so that's why we reached out to experts uh, like Paolo and the other uh, as experts like Paul who have written the essays here. If you ask them to speak about particular human rights, uh, you'll see essays on the right to life, religious freedom, freedom of expression, um, equality and non-discrimination, and reflections on collective human rights, reflections on sovereignty, and reflection on human dignity, and how all of that um, in the current international human rights discussion, how all of that squares with unalienable human rights. So in this essay series, you'll see discussion about natural law and natural rights. You'll also see discussion of the diplomatic history at the UN. How has this discussion changed over time? And then finally, you'll, you'll see a lot of information about the attempts to add new rights or to change the understanding of internationally recognized human rights. Um, so there's a lot more that I could say about some of the challenges. Just briefly, I'll say that 
the new types of rights that are being proposed now, they often have the nature of being collective rights. So one example is the right that has been proposed by the Organization of Islamic Cooperation for many years. That's the right um, for Islam not to be defamed, the defamation of religions concept. And that's not an individual right. Um, and it's, it's very unlike what is protected in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the freedom of every individual to you know, seek the truth, to adopt a religious belief, change that religious belief, manifest that religious belief. That, of course, applies to Muslims, Christians, Jews, atheists, and agnostics. Another type of right that is now being proposed are um, the rights to development. So you'll see right to clean water, right to sustainable environment. Again, these are very different than unalienable human rights because they are dependent on the government. Somebody has to provide uh, the clean water or the, the things for a sustainable environment. Um, and it often involves a discussion of redistribution of wealth. And then the third type of challenge um, comes from the attempt to make certain cultural values into human rights. And we see that particularly with the assertion that there should be new categories of sexual orientation and gender identity put into the non-discrimination provisions of international human rights law. And that, of course, creates conflicts with religious freedom, freedom of speech, and parental rights. Um, so to wrap up, what the scholars found, uh, I'll just list some of their recommendations. They recommended that um, we have the treaty bodies at the United Nations held much more accountable to their mandates, which come from the UN General Assembly. Uh, one of the authors, um, Tom Finnegan, who wrote about the right to life, he specifically calls on nation states, members of the UN, like the United States, to make sure that they actively express their opposition to new interpretations of treaties that come from the UN treaty bodies. He made that recommendation in the context of how there is now an attempt to assert a right to abortion within the right to life. But that, that recommendation applies to all of the unalienable human rights. A second recommendation um, came from Professor Jeremy Rapkin. He wrote about uh, sovereignty, U.S. sovereignty, and international human rights law. He pointed out why this matters so much to Americans, this discussion of international human rights law, because um, while the U.S. has signed on to treaties and ratified them through the Senate, there are also attempts to bring international human rights law into discussions of interpretation of U.S. law, including the Constitution. That can happen either through customary international law or it can happen through what he describes as the back court of the Supreme Court. And we've already seen in two Supreme Court decisions that some justices are citing to international law to interpret the U.S. Constitution. And so he recommends that Congress have greater oversight um, on this issue. And then um, a, a third recommendation, I think, is one of my favorite recommendations, which comes from Dr. Aaron Rhodes, who really helped us a lot in his thinking about collective human rights, which is one of the essays in this book. He recommends that the work of the commission and the work of Sam Brownback, the former ambassador for international religious freedom, with the International Religious Freedom Ministerial, that the work of these two bodies be continued in some way. And I couldn't agree with that recommendation more because we need to have this discussion about international human rights as conservatives, as you know, all Americans, 
because as long as there are continuing severe threats to the ability of people around the world to live according to their unalienable human rights, we need to have clarity as to what human rights are. In order to have a robust protection of people's rights, we need to know what those rights are. We need to be able to build consensus around those rights in order to have enforcement and protection of those who are most vulnerable. Thank you very much, Emily. Uh, Paul, Paul is joining us online here, and uh, he is a contributor to this project. He wrote a wonderful essay with uh, Michael Ferris, President and CEO of Alliance Defending Freedom, talking about how the, free, uh, the right to freedom of expression, uh, the right to freedom of speech, uh, is increasingly uh, under attack or under uh, uh, question, I guess, internationally. And I was wondering if, Paul, uh, you would talk a little bit about your paper. Emily's mentioned a couple of the other papers that have been part of the series and some of the recommendations. Uh, but talk a little bit about your paper, what your conclusions were, and what some of the recommendations were. Absolutely. And uh, thank you again for uh, having me in this important webinar. It's great to be with you virtually from a few thousand miles away. Um, perhaps as context to our paper on free speech, I could just uh, tell a couple of short stories. Um, earlier this year, a Christian couple were in prison in Pakistan. They were accused of sending blasphemous messages from their mobile phone. We've been supporting their case for a number of years. Uh, we were absolutely delighted that they were acquitted in June. Now, in finding the couple not guilty, uh, the court didn't question the legitimacy of, of these blasphemy laws. Um, it held that it couldn't be proven that this couple who were illiterate and who had had their phones stolen had sent the messages. That's why they were acquitted. Nevertheless, we were, of course, delighted. And then at almost the exact same time that this Christian couple were acquitted of blasphemy charges in Pakistan, a Christian member of parliament was accused of committing a criminal offense for something sent from her mobile phone. Uh, however, this time, the incident didn't take place in Pakistan, but in Finland. And the criminal offense isn't known there as blasphemy, but as hate speech. And, and what is the allegedly illegal content at the heart of this case? Well, it's a picture of some Bible verses posted on Twitter uh, questioning her church's sponsorship of the Helsinki Pride Parade in 2019. Now, these two stories are, are not a million miles apart on the facts. Both involved a criminal, um, alleged criminal speech uh, for um, supposedly controversial opinions expressed. Uh, one was allegedly blasphemous, the other is allegedly hate speech. In both cases, the censorship is justified by the state in order to protect others from offense. And in both cases, the speaker must also be punished and threatened with criminal sanctions. However, there's, there's one key difference in these cases, apart from the obvious severity, the difference of the severity of the punishment. And that is 
in the Western world, blasphemy laws are universally condemned as violating the fundamental right to freedom of expression. But on the contrary, hate speech laws are almost universally applauded and encouraged, um, with the notable exception of the US. And the same is largely true of the UN human rights system, uh, which brings us to our essay. Various UN bodies have heavily criticized blasphemy laws and their application, and in doing so, they've made very strong arguments for the importance of free speech. But when it comes to hate speech laws and various other forms of censorship in the West, there is a, a widespread and growing belief that we can solve most of the problems we're facing if we just increase the censorship a little bit more. So here's how we outline the challenge in our essay on free speech, a quote, in the face of global assaults to freedom of speech, never has the need for free speech champions been greater. And the UN is well placed to be at the forefront of such efforts. It has a number of bodies and mechanisms that can promote freedom of expression, as well as foundational human rights treaties with strong protections for free speech. However, this is only one half of the story because the human rights treaties also contain language that encourages states to censor speech. UN bodies and mechanisms often encourage state censorship and many UN member states use the UN system to advance their censorial agenda globally. At the heart of the UN system is a contradictory even schizophrenic approach to freedom of expression with both a free speech and a censorship approach in existence at the same time, often by the same bodies. And this uh, schizophrenia can be traced back to the very founding of the UN and it reverberates through to the present day." End quote. So the question is, which side is going to win out here? Is it going to be the pro-free speech side or, or the pro-censorship side? And if it is the, the free speech interpretation of human rights law that has any chance at all of winning out, then we need clear, loud voices speaking out. And there is really only one Western country uh, that has rejected the uh, hate speech trajectory that all the other Western countries have gone on, that is the US. So um, as a non-US citizen, I would say we need its voice uh, more than ever before. In terms of the, the recommendations that we have made, uh, we put four R's in the, in the essay. I don't know if we meant to uh, alliterate them, but that's just the way it turned out. Uh, we need to reform uh, international law to better protect freedom of expression. We need to repeal national blasphemy laws and hate speech laws. We need to reject the UN's current push for hate speech um, prohibitions. And we need to reintroduce a, a more robust free speech standard. Now, any one of these four uh, goals is extremely difficult to achieve, let alone all four of them, but that is what we need to do if we are to better protect freedom of speech around the world through 
the human rights system that we have in place. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate you joining us online. It's not the easiest uh, uh, way to do things, uh, but it's certainly something we've become used to over the past year and a half or so. Um, uh, Paula, I was wondering if you might give a few comments about your contribution to our essay series on human dignity and the foundation of human rights. And then we'll turn to audience Q&A after that. Sure. Th thanks, Fred. I'll, I'll try to be brief so there's plenty of time for those, those questions and comments. Um, my essay on dignity is, is it comes at the end of the series here. And, um, but in a certain sense, it, it you know, conceptually comes at the beginning of the series, right? Because the idea of dignity is the foundational concept of the whole human rights project. The Universal Declaration is a dignitarian document. It appeals to human dignity throughout it. Uh, almost every other human rights treaty or instrument declaration appeals to human dignity, the inherent dignity of the human person, equal and inalienable dignity, et cetera. Um, it's the closest thing we have to a single core foundational principle, the whole idea of universal um, human rights. And, um, but the problem is that, you know, without some stable and coherent thing that it's pointing to, right, a human being, then it, it's a, it's a free floating term, right? It doesn't have any other, any, any fixed meaning. Um, so unless there is something that we mean when we say a human being has value, has dignity, um, then there aren't, in fact, no human rights at the end of the day, without human dignity, right? Um, you, you, human rights are only universal insofar as human beings are universal. Rights aren't universal without human beings, right? Um, and human beings have no rights that are universal without recognition of their inherent dignity. So, so one of the core ideas of the essay is simply that this is something that continues to be central. We can't discard the idea of human dignity. We can't set it aside, no matter how challenging that gets because of our disagreements about it. Um, if we abandon that idea, we've abandoned really the project of human rights to simply the vagaries of power and, 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 and preference and arbitrariness. But the problem is there that, that dignity has a variety of different meanings depending on what your premises are. This is where philosophy comes right directly into play. Um, you know, different traditions have different understandings of what constitutes the value of human persons and what implications it should have for which rights we should protect and guarantee. Um, there's a core consensus around many aspects of human dignity, and I try to outline those. There are other areas, especially as we get closer to questions, controverted areas of autonomy and individual human freedom, where there are very sharp differences across religious, ethical, ideological, political traditions. Now, this isn't new. This was true in 1948 as well, when the Universal Declaration was drafted, right? That's not something that, I mean, we're, we, you know, we're, we're particularly conscious of it today, maybe because the differences have become so sharp. But it's a problem that the drafters were familiar with and, and wrestled with. What they did was they tried to arrive at a practical consensus around what rights we could agree to protect, even though we might not arrive at those rights from entirely the same theoretical premises regarding human dignity, right? That practical consensus was never meant to be the end point of the discussion, though. It was meant to be the beginning of the discussion, right? Jacques Maritain, one of the you know, philosophers who was involved in it, 
a Catholic natural law theorist, and people would ask him, how is it possible that you reached agreement with all these other people from such different traditions, you know, atheists and Muslims? And, and he said, oh, yeah, we can agree on the rights as long as nobody asks us why. Right? Okay. It's with the why that the disagreements begin. But he said, he went on to say, but we have to engage the why question, right? We have to go on to ask. So we have to start with a practical consensus of what's urgent, what needs to be protected. But we have to use that as a way to try to reach a deeper and broader common understanding of what human dignity is and what human dignity requires. Right? And a large part of the essay then goes on to say, we can't just do that from a philosophical point of view. The theoretical is absolutely essential, but we also have to engage in a practical reflection, right? And see what serves human flourishing and good communities in practice. We have a lot of experience around the world in history and in different political systems, including our own, of those things that damage human dignity and human communities and those things that don't. We should use that as, as a way of reflecting on dignity. And so at the end, uh, I also make some, some recommendations as all the essays do. Um, and the first one really is in some senses the most important, which is um, you know, the international law of, of uh, universal human rights needs to continue to be grounded on dignity. The, the, the controversies around dignity that we, uh, that we encounter in many of the fraught issues of the day shouldn't stop us from saying it's still necessary. It still is the first principle. Without it, there are no human rights. But then the other recommendations really tend towards also balancing that out and saying, in light of the controversies, we need to be really careful about how we use dignity and what new rights we might justify on the basis of dignity and how we might uh, engage those areas of controversy. That the important thing is seeking a high degree of consensus across the variety of civilizations and traditions of the world. Because the alternative is the risk that one particular ideological conception of dignity will then get used in some senses as a, as a hammer, right? Uh, to, to impose a more hegemonic kind of approach to it. So, so I argue a lot for a pluralism uh, at the global level, for a, a respect for sovereignty, properly understood, of course, a respect for the principle of subsidiarity, um, for the idea that uh, there is a legitimate pluralism in the understanding of realis and realization of human rights across different traditions, religious, political, ethical, and that the international system needs to take that, that pluralism seriously into account, because otherwise the system will either fail in practice or become just another form of imperialism like many in the past. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paulo. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Paul, uh, for your presentations here. As a reward for actually trekking out and showing up in person, I'd like to take the first question from the audience. Um, so if you have a question, uh, please raise your hand. Uh, we also have an opportunity to ask questions online. Uh, in both cases, if you do have a question, just identify yourself and your affiliation. Um, uh, in the course of your asking your question. Anybody in the audience want to step up first? Please. Thank you. Good. Great, uh, terrific discussion. Paulo, I'm just wondering if you could give us a couple of examples of things that were claimed the commission was going to say. Uh, and criticized for that, in fact, it wasn't. You said in general, I'm just wondering, I'm trying to think, okay, what exactly was this? 
Um, so, sure, I, I can give you a, a few quick examples. Um, uh, one was that uh, the, uh, the commission was going to issue a report that was um, an attack on and uh, a, an, an, an argument for retrogression on the achievement of rights in favor of women um, and the LGBTQI community and, uh, and the constitutional rights to obtain an abortion. Right? Um, uh, in fact, the report uses the example of the achievement and growth of the, and recognition of the rights of women in the US constitutional tradition as one of the central examples of the importance of the growth and development of constitutional principles in a good way. And the full extent to which it mentions either abortion or LGBTQI rights is in one single sentence where it identifies them as areas of controversy in American life. That's literally the only thing it says about them. Right? Um, so another thing it said is that, um, uh, that it, we were trying to freeze the idea of human rights in the mid 20th century and trying to Americanize it. Whereas the report says very clearly that you know the achievements after 1948 are really important, the other treaties need to be taken into account, that human rights has to be dynamic as an idea, and proposes explicit criteria by which we should measure and gauge whether new rights that are being proposed are in fact worthy of recognition. So you know, the opposite exactly of a frozen static approach, it explicitly argues for uh, the, the consideration of certain criteria for uh, how we should allow human rights to adapt and respond to new kinds of threats to human dignity that the world presents to us. So those are a couple examples where it's really sort of flatly contradicted by the actual text itself. Um, thank you very much. Uh, next question is going to be from somebody online. Taya, would you mind reading? Yes, thank you. One online participant asks, can you comment on the role of social media in this dispute? The commenter suggests that Facebook and Twitter set their own standards regarding hate speech and may have more impact than governments. Maybe Paul wants to. Yeah. I think that is in your wheelhouse, Paul. Uh, happy to jump in. I mean, it, but it, it's a discussion for another day, but the, uh, the challenge of the rise of uh, big tech censorship is, is obviously uh, very clear to all of us. We've seen that develop over the last um, two, three years in particular. And it, it is a great challenge in the, in the great power that these companies now hold um, and, and who are they accountable to. Um, they change their policies frequently and unilaterally. There is no real way to stop that from happening. There's no real way to to challenge the censorship after it's happened. It's increasingly being done by um, algorithm and not even by real people. And so there's just a whole collection of issues with this tech censorship. And one of the proposed solutions to it is to apply human rights standards to big tech companies. Uh, many authors now and legal scholars have said that they should um, voluntarily sign themselves up to um, the free speech standards of international human rights law, which 
doesn't sound the worst idea in the world, apart from, as I've outlined, uh, these um, free speech standards within international law are not exactly uh, the best uh, in the first place. And so it might not be the best thing to apply to uh, big tech companies. Um, so I think that one of the great challenges of the, of the coming years, and certainly of our time, is just how are we going to um, protect free speech online, if at all? Um, and I think there's a lot that we can learn from the uh, free speech cases and the human rights uh, law that has been developed over the last few years. But I would be hesitant to say that we'd be in a better position if we applied those standards uh, to these companies. I'll just finish with one uh, strange example. The case I mentioned from Finland, where this member of parliament, Pauvi Rasnan, is facing criminal uh, prosecution for posting Bible verses on Twitter. Viewers can go online and, and still read her post today because uh, Twitter did not determine that it breached their free speech policy, um, but the general prosecutor of Finland has determined that this breaches their criminal law. So it's interesting to see that, it, it, at least in, in one Western European country, uh, the standards of Twitter on their free speech uh, seem to be, in this case, higher free speech threshold than the criminal law itself. Thank you very much. Uh, go to another question online, I think. Another question is, with given the growing economic inter interdependence between states, how do states intend to take on authoritative regimes where gross human rights violations are happening? I, I guess I need to say something about this only because um, the, the commission's report says something about it um, and identifies that exactly that that, that is a problem. Um, I think it's fair to say, even across many other ideological differences here in Washington, um, there's a, a growingly broad realization of the grave threat that the People's Republic of China poses to human rights at a global scale. And that one of the most challenging aspects of responding to that is the, the, is the, the, the existence of a variety of other foreign policy and national security concerns, economic ties, uh, but also, you know, um, alliances and other foreign policy concerns. Now, this is always a problem in, in human rights related to foreign policy. It has been ever since 1977 when President Carter first announced as a formal matter that human rights would be central to U.S. foreign policy. Um, there, it, there, there are always, you know, deep tensions and contradictions with other aspects of national interest. We have to accept that that's the case. It, it, will, it, it won't realistically be the case that human rights always trumps every other concern, right? There are prudential judgments that have to be made about when is it going to be effective to pursue a certain thing or not. Now, that said, given the centrality of the threat that China poses to human rights today, uh, that problem and the economic dimensions of it, I, I think, are one of the most urgent and pressing issues that we need to be able to try to come to terms with in, uh, uh, as a nation. Do we have time for me to add something? To sure, that? absolutely. Well, um, I used to work on human rights uh, in China when I was at the State Department. 
And one thing that happened repeatedly when I went to China and was participating in the U.S.-China Human Rights Dialogue was that we would bring up cases of individuals who were being imprisoned and tortured for their religious beliefs. And our Chinese interlocutors would start talking about how China has lifted one billion people out of poverty. Now, it may be a very legitimate policy priority for a government to raise the well-being of the economic standards of their population, but that is not an unalienable human right. And we need to be able to distinguish between what is a policy priority that can be you know, decided on within a country that this, the government can pursue, and what is an unalienable right that all human beings everywhere have that the government cannot encroach upon. That is why this discussion that took place at the Commission and in these essays is so important, because as China grows in its international influence, it is going to assert its vision of human rights, which is very different than what the um, understanding of unalienable human rights is. And so that's why this conversation needs to continue. Thank, uh, thank you, Emily. That's a perfect closing for our event here today. And I just want to thank everybody for coming here in person, for all of you online for attending our conference here today, or our panel, rather. And uh, I want to urge you, uh, if you're interested in this topic, to not only uh, read the commission report uh, on unalienable rights that um, uh, Professor Carrazzo was uh, part of, but also go to the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org, and you can get all of the essays that we've talked about here today um, uh, available for free. Download. They're long in some cases, but I think they're well worth the time invested to read them. So thank you very much for coming here today, and I appreciate your, your time. <laughs>